Welcome to this Euractive virtual conference on skills, the currency of the future. How is the EU accelerating upskilling and reskilling? This event is supported by Workday. I'm Brian McGuire with Euractive. You can follow the discussion at hashtag EADebates and please tweet your comments using the hashtag or social media team. We'll be delighted to interact with you there. And to ask questions, go to the chat section and uh, use the Slido there uh, to send us the questions. We'll bring those to our panel a little bit later on as well. And just to say, don't hesitate too long. We want to uh, bring you in as soon as possible and put those questions to our panel as quickly as possible too. So. Our theme today is that it relates to November 2020, when the European Commission launched the Pact for Skills, a shared engagement and approach to skills development. The Pact aims to maximize the improvement of existing skills, upskilling and training in new skills, which is reskilling. The Pact builds on the European pillar of social rights, the EU's compass for social and inclusive recovery. It emphasizes the promotion of lifelong learning uh, for all and building strong skills partnerships, monitoring skills, supply and demand. As reskilling is part of the National Recovery and Resilience Funds, taking account of regional, national and European development it is imperative for a fair and resilient recovery. Today, we'll discuss where we stand with all this, one year after the launch of the Pact for Skills and how skills are becoming the currency of the future. Now, before I introduce our panel, uh, we have a short keynote video message from uh, Maria Gabriel, European Commissioner for Innovation, Research, Culture, Education and Youth. Ladies and gentlemen, Although I cannot be there with you, I could not miss this chance to send a word of appreciation and engagement for your work on this important topic. Skills are the key to face the twin transitions, moving to a greener, more digitalized society. Everyone needs to have a fair chance to contribute to solving these challenges, including young people, which will continue to support in their educational journey. 2022 is the European Year of Youth, which emphasizes the importance of European youth in building a better future. It is also a time to celebrate 35 years of life-changing experiences for more than 10 million young learners through our emblematic Erasmus Plus program. At the same time, the challenges we face are fast-changing. This requires skills to be delivered throughout life. For that, we need all sectors of education and training to adapt. Digital skills are an excellent example of this. In 2020, only 58% of adults in the EU had basic digital skills. Yet everyone needs these skills for life, for work and to participate in society. We are already working on improving this through our continued implementation of the Digital Education Action Plan. We recently launched the Structured Dialogue on Digital Education and Skills. This dialogue will bring together different branches of governments as well as the private sector, social partners and civil society to give digital education and skills the horizontal perspective they deserve. And as we discuss how to further increase the impact of our joint efforts, I want to put teachers at the center of our attention. Teachers need to be supported, including through better access to training and skills development. The role of the Erasmus Plus Teacher Academies is particularly important in this respect. I will also continue to promote digital and entrepreneurial skills for women and girls, including through projects like the Girls Go Circular. We need to close the gender gap when it comes to the number of women active in the digital and entrepreneurial sector in the EU. We also continue with the digital opportunity traineeships, which open opportunities for students, graduates and staff in higher education 
and vocational education and training to develop their digital skills. The importance of strengthening the quality and relevance of education and of promoting future-proof skills is also fully recognized in the European strategy for universities adopted just last week. The higher education sector plays a crucial role in supporting high-level skills development for industry and the business sector, for example. Cooperation between universities and industrial ecosystems is mutually beneficial to avoid skills mismatches and to encourage it. Moreover, at the end of last year, we look concrete actions to improve lifelong learning and employability. For example, we presented a proposal on micro-credentials, which allow for, allows for short courses to lead to a tangible certification. This means more targeted acquisition of skills and competencies adapted to a fast-changing society and labor market, as well as to the needs of our learners. The active role of higher education institutions in Europe, including the 41 European Universities Alliances, in making lifelong learning a reality across the EU is crucial. All this work, in turn, will help us further innovate, fostering a virtuous cycle between research, innovation and education. We see this cycle in action, for example, in the European Institute of Innovation and Technology. There, education, talent and skills development are in focus, side by side with the means to start up a company and scale it up for commercial success. Together with your input and with the backing of the Recovery and Resilience Facility, all this work will help us accelerate upskilling and reskilling. We can achieve our goals by implementing various policy initiatives that work in synergy and by joining forces with member states and stakeholders. I wish you a great conference and look forward to reading about your discussions. Our thanks to Commissioner Gabrielle for taking the time uh, to speak uh, for us today and to bring this message uh, to the conference as well. Uh, we're going to touch on some of the themes that uh, she set out uh, a little later on too. Now let me introduce our panelists uh, today. We have with us uh, Manuela Galen. She's the Director for Jobs and Skills at DG Employment, the European Commission. Great to have you with us. And uh, we have Victor Negrescu, Member of the European Parliament from Romania, a Vice Chair of the Culture Committee at the European Parliament. Good to see you. And also we have Jasper Van Loo, Department uh, for uh, Vocational Education, Training and Skills, European Centre for the Development of Vocational Training. Uh, we have uh, Tatjana Brabuskaya, a member of the Workers uh, Group, Group 2 at the European Economic and Social Committee. And uh, Dennis uh, Penel, uh, the Managing Director of the World Employment uh, Federation, Confederation rather, uh, for Europe. And uh, Richard Doherty, Senior Director of uh, Solution Marketing at Workday. Uh, great to have all of you with us today. Um, I want to ask you just for a quick introduction, about 60 seconds each, just to, to hear your elevator pitch or your main themes uh, for today. Um, Manuela, can we kick off with you? Yes, uh, indeed, I, I can start. And um, good afternoon, first of all, to all of you. And uh, I would like to pick up on two words that Commissioner Gabrielle said in her opening statement, namely upskilling and joining uh, forces. Because I think these two elements are key elements of the skills agenda and uh, actually of the flagship initiative of this skills agenda, which is the Pact for Skills, which you just mentioned. 
Because if we look back to the last 20 or 30 years, we see that uh, we had a target on adult learning, but there was only a slight improvement in participation in learning uh, over, over time. And perhaps this was not so urgent in the past, though we had a target, so though it was considered important, because change perhaps was not so fast, and there were also sufficiently uh, sufficient number of young people entering the labor market with the required skills. But today, as the recovery and the twins transition, so the digital and green transitions weigh in on an aging workforce, we realize that skills do become the currency of the future, both for our economy, but also for our society. And here it's also clear that uh, to ensure this upskilling and reskilling that is required, we need to join forces. So not just the education and training institutions, but also companies, social partners, and public authorities. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Victor Negrescu, over to you. Earlier, this is the currency of the future, or actually, this is the currency of the present. And we need, of course, to uh, understand, again, the challenges that it raises. But in order to do so, of course, we have, again, uh, long-term objectives at European level. But I believe that we should, again, uh, accelerate the process. And in order to accelerate the process, we have to understand what is happening right now. 65% of children currently entering primary school will probably not work in the field for which they are preparing. So there is a huge change in professions, in the way we uh, skill ourselves in the way that we are training ourselves and things are changing very fast. This is due to digitalization, this is due to the green transition, this is due to a lot of things also to our habits and also to the pandemic to be very frank. And of course we need of course beyond targets to have a clear action plan at European level. Convincing, working with member states, working with local actors, working with the private institutions to, to reach those specific targets but also to teach everyone how to do it because it's not easy to, to, to have this process working. Currently, at European level, we have decided together to have a strong objective. By 2025, we need to deploy half a billion training activities in order, again, to reach our skilling targets at European level. This is a lot. We cannot do that simply by discussing about that in Brussels. So the back for skills, the pact for skills is essential in our, in our opinion, but also it needs to be deployed at national and local level involve all relevant stakeholders, involve learners, involve trainers, involve everyone that wishes to get involved. And this is why I believe, Brian, that what you are doing right now with this conference, with this debate uh, organized by your, your active, is a really great opportunity, again, to raise attention, to convince member states, to convince stakeholders, to invest more in training and, and skilling, and to do that in a coherent, adapted, uh, cooperative process that will succeed in reaching those clear and very important targets that we have for ourselves at European level. Can you hear us? No? Yes, no. Perfect. Jasper, over to you. Yes. Thank you, Brian, and uh, good afternoon, everyone.
Um, in in the view of of, of Satafop and and also considering the the work we do, accelerating upskilling and reskilling, uh, the theme of this conference has actually many different sides, and I would just like to touch upon three of them. First, I think it's very important to to have a clear image of how much up and reskilling we actually need and. Uh, we have estimated actually before the pandemic that almost half of European adults has what we call up or reskilling potential because their skills are either low or outdated. So before the pandemic hit, there was already a huge potential. And, and this is only likely to, to have gotten bigger with the pandemic and the challenges that it brought about. A second point is up and reskilling, but for what? What kind of skills should we focus on? And this is where what we call labor market and skills intelligence or skills intelligence uh, comes in and is actually crucial. Uh, what we are doing is we're using smarter approaches to understand skill needs in a long-term perspective and at the same time look at what skills are trending now. Uh, to have an impact, all this information, of course, it needs to reach the people that need it to base their decision on. Uh, it needs to go to employers to design the training programs, but it also ultimately needs to reach individuals. That is why it's so important that the skills intelligence, that it's well contextualized, that it's personalized if possible, and of course, well communicated. Third point, and then uh, I'll close, uh, how can we improve access to skilling across the board? Time and time again, we find that learning policies work well for the higher educated, and for those that have higher socioeconomic status, but they are much less effective, not only in reaching out to low-skilled and older people, but also, for instance, to people that live in remote areas. Exclusion of such groups is really incompatible with the megatrends that we are facing, the digital and green transition, population aging, and others. So accelerating up and reskilling, the key theme of the event, it's not only about more of it, it's also about making sure we up and reskill in the right direction, that we have the right skills intelligence that leads us there. And we need to really urgently tackle the inequalities and in access to, to training and learning, while at the same time, of course, addressing business needs. Thank you. Thank you so much. Tatiana, 60 seconds. Yes, thank you, Brian. I don't even need 60 seconds to make my statement. I think that all of us, politicians, policymakers, uh, social partners, uh, different stakeholders, of course, organized civil society has now um, have now moral obligation to support people because what we're observing now have no precedence because the greening and digitalization is not the new phenomenon in the labor market. But the speed to which it's happening now, it's really unprecedented. And uh, if people are not supported, they're simply lost and lost for economy, lost for, for society as well. So we see a new forms, new roles, new skills, new ways of dealing with uh, other actors also in the economy and education and training. So actually we have to speed a little bit because uh, I do understand uh, that our plans were are looking forward, but now we don't have time. We have to do either today or even yesterday that people feel our support. This is my statement. Thank you. Tatiana, thank you so much. Excellent. And uh, Dennis, over to you. Thank you. Um, well, speaking uh, on behalf of the private employment services industry, a strong belief is that in this new world of work, you know, we need to move from job security to work protection. 
So we need to help people not to remain in a job, but indeed to be able to transit uh, in the labor market. <clears throat> and of course, you know, skilling, reskilling, upskilling is part of the solution to achieve that goal, uh, to make sure that uh, we, we can guarantee employability for the workers and at the same time enable sustainable job transitions in the labor market. So no doubt skilling is essential, but there are some preconditions for training and, and skilling to be to be efficient. And, and on that one, I will reflect what uh, the, the representative from CEDEPOC has said. You know, any training scheme should be demand-driven. We need to make sure that they are meeting expectations and needs from the employers and from the workers. Secondly, we need to ensure that training investments do not go indeed to those already well-trained or highly skilled, which is something we, we are seeing nowadays in the labor market. Uh, most of the, of the training uh, benefits to those already uh, well-placed uh, well in the labor market. And last but not least, any training scheme also, any skilling should be complemented with career guidance and support to workers. So they have a vision of their professional career. They have a vision on where these new skills will, will lead them. Uh, that's also something that is not always, you know, implemented. So we are skilling people for the sake of skilling them, but without any clear purpose or any clear direction. So to conclude, well, definitely skilling is the currency of today's labor market, uh, but it can also be the all or the engine for a better functioning labor market. And that's why it's so important. Dennis, thank you. Richard. Um, thank you, Brian. So, yes, I'm a senior director at Workday. For those of you not familiar with Workday, we're a, a leading enterprise solution provider for finance and HR. And effectively, what we're trying to do is help our customers um, adapt and thrive in this changing world. And when we look at the world of work, it's changing rapidly. And, and you know, we actually see that change or accelerating due to long term technological trends and the more recent disruption from the pandemic. Now, I've heard this mentioned a couple of times already, and, and I agree, we see skills very much as being, you know, the currency for the future of work. Um, and, and we believe, you know, that skills provide organisations with the right framework to approach today's workforce challenges. And at Workday, um, you know, uh, we've been building the technology to support skills-based people strategies for more than six years. So it's nothing new, but what's new what I've observed is the urgency for organisations to adopt skills-based people strategy. That's definitely gone up a notch or two. So, so I'm really looking forward to providing my input in terms of how technology can help with the upskilling and reskilling efforts that we know are so important. Back to you, Brian. Excellent. Thank you, Richard. Okay, our audience are already active with sending questions. I encourage you to keep sending more. We'll come to those in uh, a few minutes. And Victor, the currency of the present was something uh, you mentioned as well. How are we spending this currency? Do you think that uh, we have learned to invest differently because of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic? Or are, we, are we viewing this conversation differently than perhaps we did two years ago when we started producing uh, the, the forward-thinking policies on this, Victor? Yeah, I think, I think the pandemic indeed uh, has accelerated the process. Firstly, of assessing the situation and also in the same time acting. We, we see the emergency and we saw that during the pandemic, how difficult it was to adapt again to digital working for, for, for many people. And in some cases, for instance, for the industry, this was impossible because we didn't implement enough technologies and we didn't skill people enough, upskill people enough in order for them to be 
capable of adapting to the to that respective situation. So of course, now with the recovery plan, we have let's say a new stage in how we are tackling the issue of skilling. The fact that 20% of the recovery plan is being allocated for the digital transformation, with a high proportion allocated to skills. This is a very important target, a very important way of acting. And of course, we need to go in the same line. We need also, of course, to create synergies with the available programs, with the social fund, especially with the Erasmus program, with the other programs that are set up to, again, train people and prepare people for, for, for the current evolution. But what I want to mention, of course, first of all, is that we have to have a clear target for which we are preparing people, because some of the jobs that will probably exist in 30 years do not exist today. So, of course, for that, we need, again, an open process of dialogue to really know what we are pushing for and how we are capable of pushing in that respective direction. And this, I'm a little bit frightened that this is not happening enough. So this is why I really feel the need of, let's say, having a, a more intensive dialogue, despite the difficulties of the pandemic, in knowing in which direction we are uh, looking for, but also making sure everyone is involved because something that are happening maybe in Belgium, but maybe in my country, Romania, things are not happening fast enough. And of course, we need to put everyone together and have a common, let's say, process of, of deployment of that, of, of that, let's say, strategy of skills, because otherwise, again, we'll have growing inequalities. And again, after that, probably people will get disappointed and will not achieve the common target that we want to reach. Victor, thank you. Jasper, you wanted to add to that? I can't hear you right now. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you now. Thank you, Jasper. Go ahead. Is it okay now? Okay. Yes. So uh, I was saying one of the ways that Serafov uh, tried to shed light on what actually happened in the pandemic and how the um, uh, let's say the how we see lifelong learning and and learning more in general how that changed it was by asking actually companies how they reacted to the new challenges that the pandemic brought about and actually basically I think what I kept in mind from this were two keywords the first keyword is urgency which is the, the, the increasing need for lifelong learning. Uh, we find, for instance, that two out of three businesses uh, saw that their core business was changing to some extent. And three out of four companies actually report that there were quite substantial changes in knowledge and skill needs. So those are, uh, I, think, I think, important numbers. The second keyword is slowdown uh, when you look at learning, because what actually happened in 2020 was that the share of workers that are participating in learning and training substantially declined compared to before the pandemic. And all, for all uh, important reasons, because uh, I mean, it was difficult to switch to online. Uh, also the priority was not set, but I think it's important to keep in mind that, you know, from the pandemic onwards, we maybe we, we got set back a little bit and we need to refocus in, in really getting learning going. Thank you. And, and uh, Dennis, from your perspective, how do you see this? You know, has the pandemic shifted the urgency? Has has it focused on the, refocused us on uh, the right elements? Are we still trying to work this out? Well, I think that, that that's a tricky issue because when it comes to skilling, we need to make sure indeed that, as I said, that the, the skilling schemes are being demand driven and indeed are meeting. Uh, 
uh, needs from the workers and the uh, the employers but i don't think we can forecast you know 30 30 years ahead what will be the the, the skills needed that's much too too far we don't have a clue to be honest so we need to make sure that any training scheme is being uh, relevant indeed to maybe the next two or three years so how to reconcile you know the long-term vision with the most uh, short-term uh, uh, imperative there uh, that would be my 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 first comment and the second one on lifelong learning yeah this is more than ever important but there is one skill that we need to develop within the the, the workers and the workforce this is the learnability we need to make sure that people are willing to learn new things, which is not always easy. And there again, especially for the lower educated people, lower skilled people, but we have to develop these skills of learnability. Yeah? In the 1980s, 19, you know, 1980s, 1990s, the keyword was employability. But I think we are moving beyond that. Today, it's less the employability that matters. It's really the learnability. What's your capacity of keeping on learning on, on a day-to-day -day basis, and my last comment in relation to to the to the last you know two years we we have faced with the COVID, and something that is underestimated is actually the training on the job. I think most of us we have learned to use you know Zoom, uh, Teams, or any other you know digital tools without any specific you know learning or, or, or skill schemes. You know, so the, the the learning on the job, you know, learn as you go, as it is sometimes uh, said, is is very important. But then the next question is how do we recognize that these skills are being indeed uh, uh, integrated by by the workers? So. Anything related to the recognition of prior learning is also something important if we want to make sure that people can transit easier uh, in, in the labor market. Okay, thank you. Tatiana, you, you, you're a member of the workers group. And this, in, in terms of lifelong learning, skills, partnerships, COVID, you know, have you seen uh, workers being listened to in this? Is there a new opportunity in terms of what Dennis has described in terms of um, online learning and the adaptability that's, uh, that's there? Are you positive about this or are you fearful that we haven't got it right yet? Yes, um, yes, Brian. Uh, actually, uh, we have also some kind of, uh, like said before, we did a, a, a little survey with what's happening with workers and uh, uh, what uh, COVID uh, pandemic did uh, actually uh, highlighted the obstacles for adults and for workers uh, uh, to access training, and because this, this is these obstacles are numerous. Uh, including uh, appropriate support of financing, motivation, um, also quality guidance and counseling, lack of available quality training, also support at the workplace because someone has to replace you when you are taking training, especially in small and medium enterprises, this is a huge issue. Also, lack of respect of uh, uh, life-work balance because employers say, okay, you have to go to to do training after the working hours. And um, placing individuals in the driving seat as an individual learning account is supporting to, I mean, supposed to do is, I think it's not uh, the, the right formula because uh, it can put more pressure on workers, on adults, but uh, the responsibility of employers should be uh, uh, always uh, as key uh, responsibility because yeah, for obvious reasons. 
Okay, thank you. Manuela, how do you respond to that? You know, it's the individual learning kind of obviously the great idea, but the, the application of these across the, the skills market, across the, the economy, it varies depending on what kind of job you have, what kind of age you are, what kind of responsibilities you have as well, trying to maintain that balance. You know, how's, has the pandemic made this better or worse in terms of lifelong learning? Well, uh, what we see that uh, the pandemic has uh, has done, it, it has reduced the opportunities during the pandemic, obvious for uh, non-formal learning opportunities or informal learning opportunities, as the OECD data uh, tell us. Uh, quite uh, there was a significant uh, uh, reduction in in training opportunities, and now what we see is that the skills gaps, the skills mismatches that we had before the pandemic come back with a vengeance uh, after the <laughs> pandemic now, because we see that obviously uh, digitalization has uh, accelerated with the, with the pandemic, but the skills in the workforce are not yet there. And uh, uh, we have had also disruptions of training. So it's uh, not uh, the best of situations. And that it's clear now that we really need to focus on on uh, the capacity of uh, the individual, of every working age adult, uh, to upskill and uh, and reskill, and that's why the reason uh, that uh, at European level the Commission has proposed a number of initiatives. One is the Pact for Skills, which you already mentioned, where we try uh, by uh, industrial ecosystem to foster upskilling and reskilling uh, um, opportunities for workers in uh, in these sectors that take into account also the needs clearly uh, that that sector uh, requires but also the needs of all types of companies because we know for instance that for SMEs it's much more difficult to have their staff engaged in uh, in training the other opportunity the other uh, initiative that uh, was actually already mentioned by by commissioner gabriel is the initiative on micro credentials which is actually allowing when there is an effort done in training that the individual gets something out of it that is the recognition of the skills he or she has acquired and on the other hand the certainty for the employer of what are the skills that this individual has and then i think uh, more recently just uh, shortly before christmas the commission has proposed uh, indeed a, a proposal for individual learning accounts because we often see that uh, for the majority of adults is difficult or they are not really motivated to engage in training and uh, and I think training, the upskilling and reskilling is really the new normal. And there should be no stigmatization of everyone should engage in training. This should be seen as the new normal. And that's why we need uh, such an initiative where everybody is uh, uh, empowered to, to take training and also uh, is, uh, is feels responsible about managing um, the change that is coming uh, upon upon us. Thank you, thank you, Manuela. Richard, you know, Manuela said, what, you know, "What schools do they have? What skills do they have?" is a key part of this question as well. You know, we can talk about upskilling, reskilling, but what are we looking at, and what do we have on the table as well? From the technology side, how do we measure what we have, and how do we redeploy uh, existing skills and fill those skills gaps as well? Yeah, I actually think you know this is one of the main problems organizations have 
across the world is actually knowing what skills do they have in the workforce. And, uh, you know, there, there are two reasons why. Um, one is managing skills data is extremely difficult. It's changing all the time. And in fact, it's changing faster than ever before. Skills are becoming obsolete. New skills are, 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 are appearing and coming into demand. And then the second problem is how do you, how do you encourage your workers to actually volunteer skills data, right? Because, you know, they are an important stakeholder here. Um, so just very briefly, um, you know, there are lots of sort of new, there's lots of new technology out there that helps with this. And obviously I represent Workday, so I'll talk about what I know. So, so what we did is we've taken away that data management nightmare from our customers and we organize the skills data for them. So we've, we've built machine learning algorithms. We pump through those algorithms, um, private skills data sets that we've bought, public skills data sets that are available, customers volunteer their data, and we organize that data. And we're constantly curating that skills data. So you know, as new skills appear, um, that they, 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 will, they will manifest themselves in that skills cloud. And, but what you can also do with technology now is it's not just a list of skills. Um, it's what we call, it's a skills graph. So if you know how the Google search engine works, it uses graph technology, and we use that graph technology to manage skills. And it measures the, the strength of relationship between skills. So it, what that means is if, if an employee says that, oh, I have skill A, from all the millions and millions and millions of records that we've pumped through the system, we can, we can actually predict and say, well, we think You've also got, you know, skills F and P. Is that right? And we pop up the suggestion and then they'll go, oh, yeah, I have actually. Click, click. And they can add those skills to their profile. So that's just sort of a, a flavor of what some of the latest technology um, enables. Um, so we're using machine learning, huge volumes of data to help address the, you know, the problem of knowing what skills do you actually have in the workforce. Okay, I want to talk a little bit more about that later in terms of equality and, and gender and, and uh, how we use the, the technology in particular. Uh, Jasper, you want to add something to that? Yeah, uh, I just like, um, because uh, Richard was talking about uh, understanding the skills that you actually have when you're inside a company. Uh, what, what we've been doing is uh, using the potential of also big data uh, on job vacancies, online job vacancies that we have millions of uh, every month. And what we do there is actually we look at what skills are trending because uh, it's not a perfect data source because online job vacancies, they are not complete job profiles. But the big number of, 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 of online job vacancies that we have makes it possible to see what skills are trending. And we actually see quite interesting things. I mean, one example that comes to mind is in the pandemic, of course, we saw the shift towards digitalization. Uh, and of course, we saw that a lot of that digitalization was also not not that, I mean, it was important, but it was not really a problem because it was um, it was learning to deal with, with, with uh, virtual communication, et cetera. But we also see, for instance, that things like creativity, business reinvention skills, those kind of skills, which really signal, you know, what is the essence of, 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 of changing your skills in the pandemic, those things come clearly out. So... I would say that that the power of big data is is more widely apl applicable. I mean, uh, it's also one of the essential element and essential tool that we can use to to shape those forward-looking skills policies. Manuel, add something. Manuel, you want to come in? Come in, in that. 
Yes, yes, indeed. Yes, I wanted to, besides what um, Jasper already mentioned, uh, I think I've also wanted to speak about uh, the support we are giving to developing uh, skills within uh, within sectors. They are called the blueprints on sectoral uh, skills. And that means uh, we, we uh, actually bring together companies in a given sectors with training providers and um, and social partners and public authorities to the, to better understand what are the skills needs of that sector and translating them immediately into training in uh, in curricula in training so that the the the, the time between the needs and what is actually delivered gets gets shorter. So that is a very important uh, initiative that ha we have been carrying forward for, for several years and is now really proving also useful for the various partnerships that are being launched under the Pact for, for Skills because they are based on already a very good cooperation on forces that have already been joined for the purpose of delivering uh, skills that are required by an industrial sector. Thank you. So the, the market, the skills market is becoming more agile in a sense as well. Uh, Dennis, over to you. Thank you. Yeah, just willing to get back on, on the need indeed for, for people to better understand and know what are their skills. And therefore, of course, anything related to skill assessment is, is essential today. And even going beyond talking about, you know, uh, uh, skill certification. And many people have some skills that they are not fully aware of or they don't know how to value the skills they have. So this is why, you know, the, the role of the employment services, whether the public employment services or the private employment services are essential there to develop a better understanding and awareness of, of the skills that you have as an individual. And anything related, you know, for instance, to outplacement services and uh, when somebody is being dismissed, you know, and you can get access to employment, uh, outplacement, sorry, services, helping the person to uh, indeed identify his strengths and weaknesses and their work on the improving them is essential. So we are back to the career guidance I mentioned earlier. And then, of course, and I'm sure we'll get back to that point later on, it's true for the hard skills, but also for the soft skills. And that's more complicated to assess, but that's today more and more essentials and more and more recruitment is being, is being based on, on assessing the soft skills rather than the hard skills. And therefore, from, from our own industry, then now looking at the recruitment processes, um, what we are trying to do is more and more to recruit, as I said, on skills and competencies rather than looking at degrees and, and, and diplomas. And on that one, I really want to praise the initiative that the, the European Commission launched a couple of years ago, uh, which is called the EXCO, uh, which is this European taxonomy on skills and competencies, and making sure that any one job description, you know, in terms of title or function, relates to some skills and competencies. And that's the way you need to look at recruiting people, not, not knowing whether they have, you know, this degree or this diploma, but really being able to see, okay, what are the skills I need for this position, for this job? And of course, recruiting the people based on the skills and rather than their, their degree and diploma. Thank you. Uh, Tatiana, what about the low skilled in this equation? How does that factor? Yeah. 
Exactly. Uh, online uh, opportunities there are enormous, and uh, we see now that, uh, of course, uh, the, uh, the expansion of this access to different numerous uh, online uh, training uh, opportunities. At the same time, low-skilled uh, adults, low-skilled workers lack the skills to make the most of this kind of training and may need extra support. So also our, the skills gap uh, potentially has uh, can, can increase. And this is, this is something we have to take care of uh, from the very uh, beginning. So uh, the Commissioner Gabriel mentioned uh, gender gap, but uh, it's together with, the, with this gap and skills gap, we will have a huge problem who will not solve it now. Okay, thank you. Victor Andrescu, the investment needs, what do you, what's your take on that? I think, of course, to deliver upon all of that, we need resources and we don't have a clear, let's say, uh, origin of the sources. According to European analysis, in order to deliver upon the skills agenda, we need from public and private uh, entities to invest uh, 48 billion euros additionally per year to make sure that we are Skilling people, upskilling people, adapting them to digital transition, adapting them to the new uh, and future uh, jobs. So, of course, this is the difficulty right now is also to have the money for it. And, of course, deploy the process, because like it has been said earlier, you know, we, we are doing things. And I really want to praise here the commission and especially Commissioner Schmidt also for trying again to, to, to speak about this topic. But at the end, it's about giving those opportunities on the ground. In, in as a small communities, in the rural areas, from these people from disadvantaged background, people working in factories, convince them to take advantage of this opportunity, but also make those things very easy to, to access. And it's not like you just put a platform online and you expect people to uh, go there and, 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 and train. This will not happen. It will happen for some, maybe for us, but it will not happen for, for, for those that you want to actually reach. So, of course, in order to do that, of course, it's very important how we are communicating about it, how we are involving stakeholders on the ground, how we are involving the business sector, how we are involving creative people like the, your guest today, in order, again, to deliver upon that and use the resources that we have available that are limited, that do not match, actually, what we need to invest in this topic. Uh, but but uh, but use them in in, in an efficient way uh, that that delivers at the end. Thank you, Jasper. Quick comment, and then we're going to take uh, some questions and comments from our audience as well, Jasper. Yeah, just on the on on the low scale. To what we see from our, from our most recent analysis is uh, that the the low skilled we know already had a disadvantage in in terms of training participation. This we know for many years, but now with the pandemic, we also see that. Um, they faced kind of a second disadvantage because um, uh, the jobs that uh, that we see changing are mostly higher skilled jobs. So better qualified workers have far better em employment prospects. And actually, the the many of the of the job opportunities that that maybe ten years ago we still thought would have predicted are disappearing. So it, it, they're kind of facing a, a double disadvantage, which makes makes the issue even more pressing. Okay, thank you. I'm just going to read through some quick comments and maybe you want to pick up some of the questions that are asked here as well. Um, we have one uh, comment is that someone finishes their academic study in four years, but to be on the market to find a job, they need to do more training courses offered by the industry and they're tagged as junior. It looks like there was a real mismatch between real study and the real world. How do we align this uh, mismatch? 
uh, Andres uh, Brigger uh, says, there is no equal access to paid education leave in all sectors and all sizes of companies. And whether you're, uh, you're in precarious work, do you think there's a right to paid education leave in the EU and would that help? Uh, Jane Crothers says, who is the main provider of upskilling and reskilling? I think we've maybe touched on part of that. It is done at the job level or at the government level, these tools, or perhaps a collaborative approach of stakeholders uh, between both. And uh, Irina uh, Terziska, chair of uh, BD of the European Labour, uh, says, I do not agree with um, Ms. Gabrielle that the target groups uh, are youth, they are born digital, the risky groups are the older ones, the women and the people with physical problems. And uh, we'll come back to some of the other questions in a moment. And uh, so Jane Crowley's one of the other questions says, I hear the importance of learning how to learn throughout life, but how will this be addressed? I think we touched on some of that as well. Um, so to our panel on that as well, let's uh, follow up just with a, a tangent on uh, women digital skills as well. How are we dealing with inequality and with gender uh, in this uh, dynamic as well? You know, are, are all... Uh, is everything fair and equal to all people? Let's start with Richard. How do you see it, Richard? Oh, gosh. Um, well, so it's interesting. If we go back, uh, a little an anecdote for, in terms of when technology goes wrong. So if we go back to two or three years, you probably saw it on the news. Uh, Amazon built an algorithm to score incoming applications for their IT function. And they had trained that algorithm with data from their own organization from within that technology department. And that technology department pretty much existed, you know, was, was staffed with people who looked like me. So the algorithm was actually disregarding uh, female applications. And obviously there's a, you know, it, you know, that was dreadful and they withdrew the algorithm. So that just shows, you know, that there needs to be um, ethical standards and so on, you know, uh, built around the use of, of AI. Um, but on the positive side, um, for instance, you know, at Workday, what we've looked at doing is integrating skills into the recruitment process, the recruitment part of the system. So using skills to identify candidates and strength of candidacy. And because a skill, you know, you can't you know, from a skill, you know, I can't detect gender, I can't detect ethnicity or sexuality or whatever. So, so that's a, that, I think that's a good way. You know, if you're, if you're receiving huge volumes of applications, then using skills is a good way to try and sift through the, uh, the incoming applications. And then I think another great use of skills within organisations that I work with is that there's this emerging um, sort of technology area of, called marketplaces, internal within organizations whereby because you know the job doesn't define what someone does anymore it's the skills that they have that defines what they do and the value they can add to their organization and where I sit in that organization that doesn't necessarily mean I need to sit there and work in my department organizations now need to create these cross-functional teams with a, a, a variety of different skills and those skills may be spread across the organization so if you have, you know, if you're managing your skills data, if you have a good view on the skills across your organization, you can quite rapidly with a marketplace create these cross-functional teams. And what that means is, just finishing off, Brian, what, what that means is that it's now my skills that determine the opportunity that opens up for me. It's no longer who I know or who knows me. It's my skills. And in a big organization, you know, maybe with thousands of employees spread across Europe, I think that's fantastic because, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's really it's, it's making opportunity much more transparent because it's down to the skills. Back to you, Brian. 
Victor, how do you see that? You know, we're, we're talking a moment about uh, the different recovery plans, national resilience as well, and you, you touched earlier on the differences between member states as well, what happens in Belgium may not be the same in Romania too, but the overall values that are behind these policies as well are designed to achieve parity of equality in the workplace and uh, to try and close the, uh, the pension gap as well over, over the longer term. You know, is Richard's approach the right one, that we should be looking at, at skills, that this will help us get to a, a gender-neutral approach, it will help us uh, uh, level out in terms of uh, social inequality as well? Uh, you know, how do you see this? Are, are, we, are we able to apply... Uh, today's technology like this on top of, of the national approaches to, to what needs to be done for recovery? I tend to believe that we need a proactive approach in, in, in tackling the issue of inequality, either if we speak about gender inequality or territorial inequalities that exist, uh, of course, on, 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 the, on the job market. And this is a reality. We have to recognize that. So I come from a country where women have started to be very, very active in the digital environment. And this is due to the fact that we developed some policies, especially at the early ages of the educational process, showing very clearly that everyone, especially women or men, have the opportunity to choose such a job. And it's very important, again, to understand that, of course, when you speak about skilling and upskilling, it's not an easy job. It's not like you click somewhere on, on, on your mouse and, and, and seeing that are happening. Immediately we speak about people and people sometimes are hard to convince and, and uh, habits, values, traditions are hard also, hard also to change. So of course, in order to do that, it's clear that we need uh, uh, countries to cooperate with each other. We need the commission, of course, to accompany, to support member states in delivering uh, upon those respective results. And of course, we need a clear overview of what is happening, especially with the recovery plan and, and the social fund that has for also for a purpose to deliver upon those specific targets. And I was listening earlier to the representative from uh, from uh, Employers Association, from trade unions and the one from, from the business sector. And they were both saying the same thing. They need, again, to engage with people, to engage with the private sector, to engage with trade unions, to identify, again, clear uh, lines and clear directions, because it's, it's, it's a common task. Here, there is no uh, winners or losers. We are all losers if it, we do not succeed. We are all hopefully winners if we succeed in delivering upon those targets. And a clear line is to ensure equal access again to, to training and upskilling for everyone independently again of, of, of the differences that might exist. Thank you. Tatiana, some remarks on gender? Tatiana, can you hear us? I think you froze there for a moment. Yes, I can hear you. I don't know, I, I, I had some interruptions, uh, but I hope it will work. So uh, just on, on gender, I think that this is something which is a societal problem. Yeah, it's a societal problem because uh, it, we can't take it separately the issue of training of women. Uh, what happened during the pandemic? Women uh, became uh, kind of multitasking. They were doing uh, housework. They were they became teachers for their children, and and they were on the top of this doing their. Uh, I think she's having some. Uh, I think we'll, we'll, uh, maybe needs to reconnect. Tatiana, can you maybe try to because can you try to stabilize the? Sorry, we just lost you there for a moment. Try, try now. Continue. Think stable. Yes, uh, yes. I, I think it's not stable. Something I don't know what happens. And uh, when we look about when we look uh, at uh, the 
problem of women not being in training, losing this opportunity, also digital opportunity to be uh, to get some update, or be upskilled or reskilled, etc. We have to look that holistically because uh, better training leads to better employability. That also uh, leads to personal empowerment. It's also about active citizenship. It's also about promoting human rights and uh, and there is so many uh, uh, advantages of, of being trained that uh, also which in uh, uh, okay I think we're I will come back to you in a moment maybe uh, Manuela also uh, issue also immediately maybe maybe thank you Thank yes, you, Tatiana. Uh, uh, Manuela, in terms of the European Social Fund and the Recovery and Resilience uh, Plan as well, you know, how does this relate to equal access? Well, the, the, if we look at the funding opportunities uh, that we have through Next Generation EU, so basically through the uh, Recovery and Resilience uh, Facility, we see that a number of member states have made uh, use, or at least from the plans that we have seen so far, of the opportunity to, of funding uh, upskilling and reskilling, both through uh, individual entitlement schemes or support to companies for, for training or training via public employment services. So clearly there has been a strong uh, uh, push to support um, uh, training. Um, and we are currently negotiating the ESF plus uh, programs and also there clearly um, at least for the Commission, this is really a high high priority to ensure that uh, sufficient uh, funding will be put uh, by member states on upskilling and reskilling of uh, the adult or working age population. Uh, why this uh, this objective? Because if we look at uh, public investment uh, in uh, working age in the working age population, we see that um, basically. In average, zero it is zero point five percent of the GDP. Whereas in initial education and training, the funding is about four point five percent. So clearly, when it comes to adults, uh, upskilling and reskilling is pretty low, uh, and most of this upskilling and reskilling effort comes actually from the private uh, sector through job-specific training. So what I would say here that clearly the European level uh, can play its part, but I think there is uh, a need for a general effort towards upskilling and reskilling, putting more funding also through national budgets. I think this is really uh, necessary. And when we did uh, uh, the impact assessment for the individual learning account initiative, we also found out that one euro put uh, into upskilling and reskillings delivers three euros after three years. So I think it makes sense for public and private uh, 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 stakeholders to really invest in, in skills. Thank you, Manuela. Uh, Jasper, you want to add on in terms of who should be the main provider for upskilling, reskilling? Yeah, also a bit uh, related to the, what the previous uh, speaker said. Um, sure. I think part of the issue, I mean, money is crucial and, of course, very important. But let's not forget it's not only about funding. It's also about 
creating the systematic and inclusive systems and approaches because uh, the the market for for training in, in it differs a bit by country but in, in in some countries this is almost a completely commercial market where it, where it's hard to to achieve let's say the systematic approach the second thing i would like to mention is that um i think what is kind of a, a paradox is that that we we know we know the least basically i mean also in our research and empirically uh, we know we know pretty little about how actually learning takes place and we, we know that when you look at it uh, a lot of learning is 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 what people do in their work by making mistakes by learning from their boss etc i think you know to be able to 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 uh, to provide better evidence what what we really need is 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 increasing our understanding of learning and that means learning and training at work seeing uh, and there i come to to who should be the provider of uh, of up and reskilling i think very important not to forget that actually the workplace itself is uh, a key source of upskilling and reskilling but it doesn't happen by its own you need to have the right policies in place uh, employers need to have the, the right hr policies in place the right uh, employee representation uh, the right social dialogue and what we actually see from from and then i'll stop what we see from our research is that actually uh, if you look across uh, let's say companies only two out of five manage to uh, to really find that optimal mix uh, that that helps their workers learn uh, uh, and, and and be productive uh, in in their job so i think that that is quite an quite an important statistic thank you victor you know two out of five is not amazing um you know what role can industry really play here and ensuring fair and efficient upskilling you know how do how do we move this from two out of five to four out of five and five out of five eventually. I think it's very important how you, you, you plan the deployment of, of, of a skilling so a skilling infrastructure. Of course, you can do it by using the public sector, but also you need to involve the private sector as well. And you need a counseling. You need uh, social workers also involved in the process. You need schools, you need universities, you need people that are specialized in in, 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 in training and, and teaching. So, of course, this is why I said earlier that, again, the pact for skills, I think it's a very important, let's say, proposal. But also within that proposal, we had a, 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 another additional element that was supposed to create pact for skills at local level. I think we need to make sure that the local level is involved in the process in order to upgrade the number of people that are participating at this type of trainings. And of course, teach people that do not know how to deploy such programs. For instance, there are SMEs that might want to teach and, and train their staff, but they do not know how to do that, or maybe they don't have the resources to do that. In the same time, we might have, uh, why not, public institutions where this is happening just to, you know, to respect some uh, national contract of, of, of skilling uh, civil servants, but in reality, the training that is being provided is not adapted actually to the needs or to uh, upcoming changes when it comes to the public sector. So there are a lot of things that need to be well designed. The design is key, so this is why we need a multi-stakeholder approach. And of course, in order to do that, uh, we, we, we need, of course, to, 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 to have an open process, a transparent process, and, and make sure that we have, again, like I said, clear targets. Thank you. I just want to bring Dennis in and then Manuela. Dennis. Can you hear us, Dennis? There we go. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, on, <clears throat> on that one, it's it, it's again a tricky issue because when you look at the labor market, we, we are seeing two ends. You know, on the one hand, the really you know uh, lower skilled people, and not to mention the uh, early school uh, leavers. You know, people exiting the education system without any degree or. Or, or, or the basic skills, you know. And on the other hand, we are seeing highly educated people. And then I, I will quote, you know, Stefano Scapetta from the OECD saying that we have today, you know, over-educated uh, uh, young uh, people, but they are under-skilled because indeed they have nice degrees, but they don't have any skills that, you know, employers are looking for. And this is really this mismatch that we, we have to address. And then when it comes to... Um, uh, to the training providers, let's not forget that employers in general are investing you know, a lot of money on, on, on training. Huh? In some countries, as you know, this is compulsory. There is an obligation to spend, you know, X percent of your of your uh, total uh, wage uh, amount on, on, on training. So a lot of training is being delivered by, by employers. And again, for the sector I represent, the, the private employment services sector, and especially via the temporary work agencies, you know, a, a lot of training schemes are also being delivered. And again, the specificity is that they are really demand-driven. It's because we know that the user companies working in the labor market, in the local labor market, are, are looking for this type of, you know, positions or skills that we can set up and engineer some, some training schemes. So... Again, that's really important to make sure that people are being trained uh, on, on needs uh, from from um, uh, from the employer uh, on that one. Thank you. In terms of the pact for skills at local level, I, you want to touch on that? Yes, yes, because I I, I, I do agree very much with what uh, uh, Victor was saying that uh, the local and regional dimension is is very important, and that's why I think. Uh, I would like to explain a little bit what the Pact for Skills does, because indeed it is about setting up uh, partnerships, large-scale partnerships, but also regional partnerships. So it can be partnerships that are driven by a, an industrial sector or actually partnerships that combine a regional approach with a sectoral approach or only a regional approach and uh, uh, we have been partnering up also with the committee of of the region on this and i'm very happy to be able to say that we have already a number of regions that have launched uh, this type of skills alliances in the czech republic in uh, france in portugal in germany in romania in sweden uh, spain belgium and, and denmark and we hope that these are only the first ones that uh, uh, in a while if we meet again i could report on on many more regions because it's indeed very important that this happens at the local and regional level because it's only at that level that we really know what are the skills uh, uh, that need to be updated, uh, what has the workforce there and what are the skills needs of the industry. And bringing the two together at local and regional level is indeed uh, the, key, the key objective. Thank you, Manuela. Uh, Richard, just in terms of the importance of looking at skills holistically, how should we do that? Yeah, so, so I think the important thing or point I'd like to make is that we shouldn't look at skills as just being a, a learning and development thing. I think we need to look at skills holistically, um, organisation, meaning that, you know, workforce planning, for instance, which is typically uh, headcount and cost, 
we're seeing that's changing to be more skills-based workforce plans because if you haven't got the skills in the organization you can't execute on the strategy or, or you know, whatever that may be so and then and then those workforce plans will inform um recruiting strategy uh, and the recruiting of course as i mentioned before it, we're seeing a shift there to recruiting for skills rather than rec recruiting for a specific job perhaps and then obviously learning uh, programs need to be linked to skills to filling the gaps that you've identified within the organization and then sort of from a talent perspective, you know, we can use skills to match employees with mentors, to match employees with perhaps internal projects where they will pick up new skills. We're even seeing some organizations um, weaving skills into their compensation plans. Um, so, 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 you know, so skills becomes this red thread, if you like, that connects these different stages in the employee life cycle. Um, so, so that, that's what I mean by, by, by the importance of looking at it holistically, Brian. Okay, thank you. Let's go to some questions and comments uh, from the audience. Uh, Scott Marcus uh, from Bruegel. I said, what about mutual recognition of skills across member state boundaries? This has historically uh, been important. And maybe um, I'm well than Victor in this. We should have fixed this for now, yes. shouldn't we? It's a, it's a difficult question. Yes, I, I can start with that. Of course, a mutual recognition has been uh, put forward in the European education area as uh, one important element, because indeed it is uh, uh, about facilitating mobility, labor mobility across, across uh, member states and ensuring that uh, we have a really a European space of, of learning. However, uh, education and training are areas that are mostly in the responsibility in the remit the competence of uh, of member states so um we we have made progress uh, throughout uh, the years but it's not uh, a, an immediately uh, solvable uh, solvable issue but i think programs like uh, erasmus plus have definitely uh, put a very positive spin uh, spin to that because I think after 35 years of Erasmus, we all know how this has changed really the perspectives of uh, of uh, Europeans. Thank you, Victor. You are should we be looking more at transferable skills in the European market, or should we still be hung up on uh, recognition of diplomas and and qualifications? I think both uh, should uh, be done in the same time. And of course, I've been a, an active promoter of, of those two things since 2014 when I launched a European campaign for that. So, of course, recognition of diplomas, recognition of studies, recognition of training periods, recognition of skills, but also in the same time, transferable, let's say, skills or uh, different types of elements that recognize the, the training of a certain person. So, of course, all of that needs to be accelerated. There are a couple of proposals that have been launched by the Commission, also with the help of the European Parliament. But of course, we need to deliver upon that. It's, it's crucial for individuals to know that once they are learning something, that experience, that know-how that they manage to get is recognized by others in other states, but also by other private entities, by other stakeholders, by other public institutions. So this is also crucial. And this, you know, of course, it's a process that implies I guess, uh, again, an agreement between member states, but also it implies us to push in that respective dire direction. And something that has not been mentioned is also important to have, let's say, uh, uh, a document that represents a reference for 
for us as individuals when it comes to our training and skilling. So this is why the, 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 the skilling framework at European level, the qualification framework, all, both are essentially, in my opinion, of course, to know the direction, the direction that we are pursuing, but also to uh, explain to, uh, to, to the entities that are delivering trainings how to train people and which type of skills they should they should embrace and they should promote and like it has been said before it's a 360 degrees approach you need to take into consideration all of that it's an holistic approach when it comes to training people and this should be also reflected let's say in the european perspective thank you tatiana you wanted to comment on the role of collective agreements Yes, indeed, because uh, uh, the development of this partnership is something, of course, which is very welcomed. But at the same time, we have to uh, imagine that we speak about 27 member states having their uh, various, uh, I mean, different tra traditions and culture and how uh, they facilitate uh, training, education and training. And um, in, the, in the countries where the collective agreement actually determine access to different types of unpaid leave for workers, uh, it should continue to be uh, uh, the case because it works. It's, it's, it, if it needs to be reshaped, it will be reshaped because we have to respect the economic and social interests also of, of uh, uh, all the, the, the actors. So that's that's about collective agreements. And um, when we speak about, uh, just to, to, to finish, when we speak about unemployed people, low-skilled people, we speak about gender inequality, etc., we have to be in mind that we have 27 member states with very different situation and different, there is no one formula, no recipe, no one recipe, and nothing will work if we are not taking individual member state approach. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Just a couple of comments uh, from our audience. Uh, Jane Crowther says, mentorship and having an ally in the workforce could be so important in advancing uh, through job skilling. I know some member states do this much better than others. Uh, Maria Luisa Martinez from uh, Global Fashion Agenda. Uh, she says, thanks for this interesting event. Shouldn't some of the upskilling, reskilling issues be addressed during new diploma requirements? And we see, for instance, designers have a lack of focus on sustainability in their uh, diploma uh, curricula. And uh, we also have another one uh, from Arena. It says, uh, we do estimate the, the poorer countries in the EU have uh, to be specially supported by the European uh, Commission for digital training of their workforce and citizens. If the EU tries to be competitive with the USA and China, its people have to be digitally empowered. Is this not the case? Uh, it is not the case with Bulgaria as well. Uh, so let's go back to our, our panel as well. You know, the, the informality of things like mentorship as well, Manuela, how, how do the resilience packages help support uh, this kind of approach? Because you know, when we talk about resilience, we're talking about not just solving a problem now, but preparing ourselves uh, to be stronger, tougher, more flexible uh, for the European economy and the labor market going forward. Yes, I... I do think that we, we need to, to skill in a way that it's not just for today, but also for, for the future, because obviously in five years we will be doing something something different than what we are doing uh, uh, today. So um, I think this, this skills intelligence aspect is really important, and uh, we, we hope that uh, uh, the uh, through the funding that we are putting or the initiative that we are putting forward, this will be uh, this will be also uh, taken uh, taken up. 
Now, we have seen that this is quite a crucial element in the Pact for Skills. The skills intelligence is clearly, is clearly there and is an essential element of, uh, of ensuring that the upskilling and reskilling of the workforce is in line with the, with the requirements of, of the workers. But we also hope that being efficient in upskilling and reskilling means also being open uh, or open-minded in the sense that uh, not just about the needs of today, but also potential needs of tomorrow. And I think one of the speakers already mentioned the need to be a bit broader in the approach to skills. So, so more looking also at trans, um, as um, cost-cutting skills like negotiation skills, communication skills. So those skills that... Uh, that are more and more required on, on, on the labor market. So having a broader approach to skills than just the technical specific skills that are required in the specific job, I think it's an essential element for ensuring that the workforce is up to date. Thank you. Uh, Jasper, you spoke earlier about uh, the intelligence required for this as well, skills intelligence. How, how do you uh, put that in context with what, what uh, Manuel has said? I'd like to I like it to link to what Manuela said, but also what we heard from some of the of the comments. If I remember the the, sure. the question about um, uh, inserting uh, sustainability into qualifications, uh, which actually touches and 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 very much you know um, I'm very much in in agreement with Manuela said that we need to take a broader perspective uh, to all of these things. Um, one of the uh, one of the core issues and i think i think it's 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 a very important issue is how do we uh how do we see the skills needs that are connected to the to the green transition um that is uh, it's, it's a crucial point um because um we we always talk about the the the, the skills for the green transition and not green skills because not all this all the all the uh, skills for the green transition are actually green. I think it's important to realize. Uh, of course, you have the, uh, the the traditional examples like uh, people that are involved in in solar panel or wind energy, etc. So you have you have the core skills. But apart from that, you have a you you have a, you have a skills revolution in all other jobs because basically in in, in most jobs you will need to have some sense of uh, of sustainability. You will need to. To have awareness of, of your impact on the environment, etc., and then of course you have um, you have what we we call we call them sometimes thyroid occupations, which are actually small in terms of employment, but crucial for the green transition because hydrogen engineers, um, uh, people that are specialists in carbon capture, um, there are not going to be that many, but without them, the, the the green transition doesn't help and doesn't 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 happen. Um, so, so yes, uh, I think we're we're looking at, at different types of skills intelligence at the moment: green skills intelligence, digital skills intelligence. So uh, we're expanding there, and, and and we are actually taking that open approach to uh, to seeing what what is what is happening today, but also importantly, what we can be expecting in the coming years. Thank you. Did you say thyroid there? Did I hear that correctly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thyroid. We sometimes. It's not an official term, but sometimes we we like to think of it like that, like a, like a small small part of the economy, but crucial. Excellent. It's not functioning properly. Everything slows down. Victor, over to you. 
Yeah, I want to come back to the issue of, of mentorship, and non-formal education, which, in my opinion, are not taking on board enough, of course, in, in the youth finance programs. So I was part myself, of course, of different uh, programs, and all these things are very rigid. So, of course, as a trainer, you need to sign a contract, have clear deliverables, explain everything that you are doing, document all of that, sometimes record the discussion that you are having with, 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 with the learner, which is almost impossible in a real mentorship format or a real non-formal education that is important not only to skill people, but also to, to give them the drive in order to do that. Because, again, it's about people and this is not an easy task and of course in order to do that you need this personal a very close approach also between the uh, uh, the, the learner and, and and the teacher and i want to of course underline that hopefully the commission will become more flexible in allowing again different experiences of mentorship and non-formal education to also be financed and supported through european initiatives excellent thank you Victor. dennis Yeah, to build on what Victor just said, um, I mean, again, our industry is, is organizing and developing many training schemes. The big issue we face is that we don't find candidates for the training opportunities we are offering. <laughs> Still an issue with uh, indeed uh, access to, to, to training from a worker's point of view. And this is where also we are trying to develop new innovative solutions to facilitate access to training like you know what we call gaming uh, it's training uh, sessions that are a bit like a video game where you learn by playing you know and works quite well once again for the lower skill people it's also about you know use virtual reality to uh, to 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 facilitate you know appetite for for training so that's really important and then the second point i was willing to make back to what tatiana said about you know collective agreement Let's not also underestimate the role of the social partners in, in developing a, a training scheme. Uh, in many countries, we have what we call bipartite training funds. So those are funds, training funds being funded by the employers, but jointly managed with the trade unions. And this is also very important. It works very well because there again, there is a clear uh, interest for delivering training that will meet you know, expectations in the labor market. Um, and just to give you a figure from the uh, from the agency work industry, we have, I think, seven countries in Europe with some specific, you know, training funds, barbatite training funds, meaning that we train on a yearly average probably more than, than two million workers, you know, from the agency work sector. So, and, and this once again being done jointly with the trade union, so very good example of a good social dialogue between employers and, and, and workers' representatives. Thank you. Uh, let's take a couple of quick comments here as well. Um, this one's from Madalena. Uh, online courses have, were mentioned, new training materials prepared by universities and VET for newly identified automotive skills are available for free. Still, the search for those could be much higher than it is. Uh, what uh, would you think about the reason if these were widely disseminated in, in the ecosystem, so making much more uh, skills development available for free online? Um, very personal question from Zainab, who, what do speakers recommend for students studying at the Faculty of Economics and the Ministry of Sciences uh, to improve the skills and capture the ongoing change? And capturing the ongoing change is, is an interesting part of that too. And uh, just final uh, couple of comments here from Chatur Singh in India. Digital world may not yield expected results unless it's coupled with uh, practical experience, indeed. And uh, Alina Felder says, as uh, skill information is an issue cutting across policy areas, how does the EU approach this fact? 
and how DGs, those activities relate to skills formation working together, uh, uh, whether the skill formation actors uh, turn to word based turn to for EU support. Uh, any quick comments, any of those uh, remarks before we start uh, our final comments, Manuela? Well, I, I think um, that there is one comment that struck me a lot that is about uh, what to choose uh, as, as choice of studies for the future. And I think uh, um, clearly the, the twin transitions point in one direction, no digital and, and green. But uh, what I would say is that uh, it's, it's passion. No, you, you should follow really your passion because your working life will be long enough and it's important that you feel happy about what uh, you do because it's only if you're happy about what you do that you will be successful. Today. Uh, Victor, in, in terms of uh, where we go next to this, uh, are you optimistic that uh, this is going to be a transformative moment for the European economy, that we will compete with the United States, we will compete with China effectively? Are, are, are we producing the workers needed to do that? Uh, currently, we are, we are lacking behind, but, but, but I'm positive. I believe uh, that there are many European drivers that are pushing in this, let's say, proactive, positive direction in order to catch up, but also why not innovate in certain fields when it comes to skilling, upskilling, but also when it comes to adapting our economy, our societies for, for, for the future. But we need to embrace those uh, drivers, uh, involve them in the process, in the European making process, but also at national, local level. And sometimes this, there are some difficulties because we are too bureaucratic about it, because you need to apply by, I don't know which date, to be part of a stakeholders group done by the Commission. And of course, those drivers do not have the time uh, to do that. They need to be approached directly. They need to be involved in the process. We need to have a clear strategy. But I think there is in Europe enough potential for us to become again a leader at global level when it comes to again skilled workers. But of course, we have to make sure, like I said, that we do not leave people behind. We do not leave countries behind. We do not leave regions behind because sometimes this is happening too much. So I, I also want to call upon you and the other participants, again, to work together in this direction and make sure there is an equal access to those opportunities that we are developing together in a constructive way at European level. Thank you. Just a quick comment from Richard before we go to, to the wrap-ups. Richard, the, you know, the, the holistic approach you mentioned earlier and just in terms of what Victor said there now as well, are you positive that digital is going to help us uh, be competitive on the global market and sooner rather than later? Yeah, for sure I do. And, you know, in terms of the, you know, the organizations that I work with across Europe, um, you know, they are really embracing um, the need to modernize the, the technology that they use, uh, you know, within HR and to manage skills. And we're seeing a massive shift to skills-based people strategies. And the, the only way really to do that is, is, is to adopt the latest technology um, to manage that skills data, build out that data foundation and then start, you know, uh, weaving skills into those processes, the, the recruiting, the performance management, the learning, the development, and so on and so forth. So, no, I'm, I'm very positive that there is a massive shift. And it's not just my company that's shifting to a skills-based approach for their HR technology. Most of the leading providers are doing the same thing. There's a massive shift at the moment. 
Okay, thank you. Now we've got to wrap up um, because we have six panelists. Uh, we've got to keep on 30 seconds each. I have a stopwatch here. I, I will thank you profusely uh, when you reach 30 seconds. Uh, so let's go as we start. Manuela, your takeaway points for today, 30 seconds. Off you go. I think uh, I would say one word, inclusiveness, which came back and back uh, again in the discussion. And I really do think that is a key, a key word and a key, a key objectives, because if we want the skills to become the new norm, we have to make sure that everyone feels that it is important that uh, uh, upsk uh, feels uh, that upskilling and reskilling is, uh, is important. And uh, we can only be inclusive if everyone has the opportunity to master his or her life or job. And that, uh, and you. in that skills are an important part. Thank you so much. Victor, over to you. For me, there are three key concepts. People, it's about people. They, we want to skill them. Secondly, we want to have a multi-stakeholder approach, involve everyone that wishes to participate. And there are many drivers in Europe. And third is to accelerate the process, also due to the pandemic, but not only, only due to the pandemic. If we want to make skills the currency of the future, we have to give value to it. And of course, it is up to us to make this decision. And the European format can be the perfect location where we can make such a direction, give such a direction for Europe and for skills. Thank you so much. Jasper, 30 seconds. Yes, um, I think a, a key takeaway is that we, we cannot really make informed decisions about skills without the, the proper skills intelligence. And that proper skills intelligence, I think, also comes along with a change in perspective. We've said it um, from transition into work to multiple transitions in life, from maybe using skills proxies, as we did before, uh, like occupation or education to analysis based on actual skills. Um, also from um, from thinking about strengthening links between education and the world of work to more skills ecosystems thinking. And I think what's happening at local level and at regional level is, is very exciting uh, in this view. Uh, there are several cities and, and regions in Europe who are uh, experimenting with data, are, 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 you know, are, are making transition uh, trajectories possible. Uh, I, I think I think the local level is is something that we should keep an, uh, clearly an eye on because that's where a lot of the action really happens and also should happen in the in the future. Thank you, Jasper and uh, Tatiana. Over to you. For me, it's well-being, and uh, we must uh, we must dislodge growth uh, from our institutions uh, as well from uh, as from uh, imaginaries and. Um, we have to engage into a well-being transition. Uh, once we know where we move, we will move faster. Thank you. That's a nice concept. Excellent. Thank you. Dennis, over to you. 30 seconds. Thank you. Um, well, 69% of the employers worldwide are reporting difficulties in, in recruitment, uh, in recruiting the right talent. So clearly, skilling is beyond question. This is what we need. Let's make sure that uh, the money is well spent once again on, on where are the market's uh, needs and the, the workers' uh, interests. Thank you so much. And Richard, last word, 30 seconds. Thank you. So, I mean, what I'd like to say is, you know, skills-based people's strategies are very difficult to implement. You know, at, at the organizational level, you know, let alone at the national or EU level. Um, however, 
you know, the timing's not bad to have to have this focus on skills now because the technology is able to handle the very large volumes of data that we're going to need to process to really understand what skills have we got. Um, and also we have, you know, things like machine learning that helps us organize that data and leverage that data in a more intelligent way than ever before. So I think, you know, public-private partnership with the right technology will, will, will set us on the right course. Well, thank you, Richard. Let me just thank uh, all our panelists, uh, Manuela, Victor, Jasper, Tatiana, Dennis, and Richard. It was a very good conversation today, and it was clear from the response we got from the audience that they were fully engaged uh, with this as well. Our thanks also to Commissioner Gabriel uh, for taking the time uh, to open with the, the video message today. And to the, your active team, you don't see them, uh, but I do, the social media team, who are, uh, will be active after this as well. Uh, for Anna, Zoran, and Malta in the studio as well. And uh, to Workday uh, for their support, we appreciate that a lot. So I wish you uh, the remainder of the day uh, be a productive one and uh, upskilling and reskilling. That's the message uh, from Europe today. I'm Brian McGuire.